0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust.
0: You're about to hear a rebroadcast of Where We Live. It originally aired October
2: 24th. Twenty nineteen. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. The Connecticut River flows past many towns and cities in our state. Visitors to its banks in Middletown will now see a large plaque near the water. The plaque in Middletown's Harbor Park marks the city's history as a port and not only welcomed ships that carried enslaved Africans. It also was a necessary stop for the loading of local goods and provisions for colonial powers operating in the Caribbean, an important hub in the transatlantic slave trade. Today where we live, we learn why the city of Middletown is now recognizing its contributions to slavery. Coming up, we'll also hear how some Middletown residents have been working to raise awareness about a prominent African-American family. Do you know the story of the Beamans? We'll tell you about them. That's later. First, I want to welcome to the show my guest in studio, Debbie Shapiro, who is the municipal historian of Middletown, Connecticut. Debbie, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Also with me is Demetrius Udell, professor of U.S. history and dean of the social sciences at Wesleyan University, also in Middletown, Connecticut. Demetrius, welcome to where we live.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
2: I wanted to start with Debbie. Uh, I understand you've lived in Middletown for a number of years. Uh, Tell me about, uh, did you move to the city? Are you born and raised in in Middletown? Oh, um, I've lived in Middletown about 45 years
4: now. Um, I grew up in the Midwest on a farm in Ohio and um, I went to law school down in Virginia and uh, at William and & Mary. And who did I meet but uh, Dan Shapiro uh, <laughs> from um, Middletown, Connecticut. And uh, when we were deciding to get married, he said that uh, he wanted to go back to Middletown and practice law there. And since I didn't really want to go back to the farm, <laughs> uh, I thought, this is great, and uh, I I really think of Middletown as my hometown because um, having married somebody local, I was able to meet so many people and really feel a part of the community right away.
2: When you moved to Middletown, were you aware of the city's history as an important port uh, in New England? Uh, not at all. Not at all. When I uh, think about uh, ports, I think about traditional cargo, but not often on the people's minds uh, are the idea that enslaved Africans were on some of these ships that came to Middletown, Connecticut. Was that a surprise to you when you first learned that? Oh, it certainly
4: was. Well, I'm almost 70 years old, so I'm of a generation that uh, in high school uh, was taught that uh, slavery was in the South. It wasn't in the North. The Northerners were the good guys and um, I, mean, I had ancestors who fought on the, the side of the north in the Civil War. And so when I first learned all about uh, slavery in New England,
2: I was just floored. It was, it, it was just astonishing to me to find all this out. I mentioned this plaque that now uh, sits by the, the Connecticut River in Middletown. I wanted you to, to read an excerpt of that text that's found on the plaque.
4: Oh, well, um, the beginning of the plaque has uh, general language about uh, the slave trade. But then uh, the last part of it is uh, very specific to Middletown. And it reads, in 1738, the ship Martha and Jane, owned by Abraham Redwood, arrived at Middletown's riverfront, having sailed from Africa, and 126 enslaved Africans disembarked. During the voyage, 23 of their fellow captives perished. In 1761, the Speedwell, captained by Middletown native Timothy Miller, also arrived carrying its human cargo from Africa. On that voyage, 21 enslaved Africans perished during the Middle Passage, with 74 surviving. The names of the men, women, and children who made these treacherous voyages are lost to history. This marker is erected to remember the lives of these and the thousands of other enslaved people who contributed to the building of our community, erected by the citizens of the City of Middletown,
2: 2019. That's Debbie Shapiro, municipal historian of Middletown, Connecticut. As I mentioned, Demetrius Udell is with me, professor of U.S. history at Wesleyan University. Uh, It might be surprising uh, for some of our listeners to hear uh, that there were these two ships that came to Middletown, Connecticut in the 1700s. Take us back to that time when these ships uh, carrying enslaved Africans stopped there. Tell us about the transatlantic slave trade and why Middletown, Connecticut.
3: So um, the two ships that she mentioned is, um, came in the 18th century. And by the time um, we get to those ships, there's been already uh, quite a bit of history. The 18th century is going to be the peak of the transatlantic slave trade. And it was dominated at that point by Britain. But there's a long history to that. And this history begins in the 15th century. Um, first with the Portuguese, who are going to round Cape Bojador and land on the shores of the with Senegal. And that is what's going to initiate this process. It begins with about 250 slaves who go to live on the Iberian Peninsula. And um, then, in the wake of the voyages of Columbus in 1492, there's going to be a call as early as 1501, according to Colin Palmer, for by Nicolás de Ovando, the governor of Hispaniola, to bring slaves. And by 1518, you're going to be able to bring these slaves directly to the the, the Americas. That's why it's called the Middle Passage, because before they used to go mm-hmm. to, to Spain, or the Iberian Peninsula before. So... As Moses Finley, who's a historian of antiquity, says, many societies knew some form of, inservitude, of servitude, indentured labor, coarse labor, slavery. But something distinctive happens in the Americas because there it becomes racialized and relegated to one population group. And it was a massive project. If you think about the numbers of slaves that would go four million to Brazil, half a million to the United States, um, one to two million to the Spanish Caribbean, another two million to the... British Caribbean. So this really was the beginning of a world economic system.
2: I mentioned uh, why Middletown, Connecticut. Uh, So can you talk a little bit about the location of Connecticut? Uh, This was considered the the Middle Passage?
3: So New England is very important because this is where you're actually going to have slavery, as as, Debbie pointed out as well. It was linked to the slavery in the South. And um, even in the 17th century, you had the question after the 1638 Pequot War and 1676 King Philip's War, enslaving indigenous peoples and also of Africans. So Middletown was part of this whole complex in New England of world trade. Um, if you're familiar with the book Complicity, to talk about the Weatherfields girls and the onions. Mm-hmm. They produce food that was shipped to the West Indies. Also, the cod, the rejected cod from Massachusetts, went to the Caribbean. Um, for slave, for food for the slaves. So Middletown was a part of this world economic system.
2: Uh, Debbie Shapiro is also with us here in studio as we talk about uh, Middletown's history. Again, an important uh, port uh, in New England, and uh, it contributed to the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, Debbie, tell us about the founding of Middletown, Connecticut, and how it is tied uh, its founding, its wealth, uh, to what was going on in that period of time. Well, Middletown was founded in
4: 1650, and uh, the first uh, settlers were farming, uh, but they quickly discovered that uh, Middletown had deep water. Uh, the, um, the Connecticut River uh, down in Old Saybrook I uh, had uh, a big sandbar, and still does, and so uh, there was enough room for uh, ocean-going vessels to go by, but there was no anchor- anchorage in Old Saybrook, whereas there was anchorage up in Middletown. So that's how Middletown was able to develop as as a port. And these um, uh, the settlers uh, recognized right away how important that was. And um, the sugar barons down in the islands, uh, they were keeping all of their acreage in sugarcane because it was so lucrative. So because of that, they had to import all the food that they fed uh, to themselves and their enslaved workers. So that's where New England is coming in with all this food that's being shipped down. Um, the ships' manifests that are in the uh, archives of the Historical Society show the onions going down, potatoes, uh, meat – Um, Horses, uh, oxen, uh, a lot of horses were needed to run these plantations. In fact, um, it's been estimated that tens of thousands of horses were shipped uh, to these plantations, and 75 percent of them came uh, came from Connecticut. Uh, So uh, these horses are tied on the on the tops of the ships. And so they would go down with all this produce, and then they would come back north with uh, sugar, molasses, rum, and unfortunately, enslaved people as well.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh, Debbie, tell us about the the two ships, again, that are mentioned on this particular plaque uh, now along uh, the waterfront again in Middletown. What do we know about uh, the enslaved Africans that were on those two ships?
4: Well, uh, that is the thing. We know something about Timothy Miller. Uh, He shows up in the archives, and uh, he's a well-known sea captain. And Abraham Redwood actually was uh, uh, an owner out of uh, Rhode Island, and uh, he gave a lot of money to open a a big library in in Providence. So uh, a lot is known about Abraham Redwood, but uh, almost nothing is known about these enslaved people um there are uh, ads uh, in the newspapers uh, that show uh, s- different merchants on Main Street uh, are advertising that they have uh, uh, enslaved woman newly arrived from Africa so uh, we that's all we know about them. Uh, we know about specific enslaved people from uh, from church records uh, from some family records uh like memoirs that, uh, that are at the Historical Society, but, uh, but very little is known about the people who well, – on these two ships, 200 people came, uh, came to uh, Middletown.
2: Uh, Demetrius, I wanted you to maybe uh, expound on that a little bit, this idea that you know, archives are important uh, when we are able to look at chip manifests, uh, ads in the newspaper at the time. Uh, but uh, the fact that there's not a lot known about the enslaved that were brought here, that also speaks and makes a point.
3: Yes. There's quite a bit of work done now in terms of what's called silencing of the archives. And I wouldn't want to push that too much, but it does, it, it does tell us something about who was considered to be important enough to have records kept for them. Mm-hmm. So we have to begin to think differently about history, to how, how do we tell stories. And this is where you have to com- you know, this is where questions of fiction comes in, like Toni Morrison's work is excellent, and it's mm-hmm. helping us to sort of reimagine what it was like to live under slavery. Mm-hmm. And we have to also become comfortable with living with the fact that we don't know some things. And that's okay, too. Mm-hmm. Right? It shows that history does have these gaps. And, um, you know, it was recorded by certain people at a certain time from a particular perspective. And these people were not valued as much. And so, therefore, their lives and their stories were not ones at the time that, you know, um, were worthy of being told. I think it might also serve as a cautionary tale for us to think about perhaps whom are we leaving out when we write our histories today so that we don't at least try to fall into the same traps.
2: Demetrius Udell is a professor of U.S. history and also dean of the social sciences at Weston University. He's here in studio with me as well as Debbie Shapiro, municipal historian of Middletown. As we look at efforts uh, in recent uh, weeks and months where the city of Middletown is acknowledging its connections, its uh, how it contributed to the transatlantic slave trade. If you're a resident of Middletown, we want to hear from you. Find us on Facebook and Twitter, uh, at where we live. Uh, before we head into break, I was wondering if, uh, Demetrius, you could talk a little bit about, you know, our ideas, uh, especially in the north of what uh, slavery is or was. When we hear Debbie Shapiro mention uh, these advertisements, uh, the fact that some of these enslaved Africans came off these ships and also did jobs in Connecticut and throughout New England, what kind of jobs were they doing?
3: Well, you know, and because you didn't have the um, sort of plantation agriculture system in the north, they would do things like dig wells, women officers, n- nurses, um, certainly a lot of domestic work, and um, if you think about, um, say, the Mid-Atlantic region, New York, they built, you know, the, the churches, taverns, um, the buildings along the Battery in New York were built by slaves. Um, Wall Street, for which it takes its name, was also built by slaves. So. You know, it was a form of skilled labor, actually, right? It wasn't just agricultural labor. It was, you could say, in the mid-Atlantic, semi-urban, and here also agricultural and domestic, but also requiring technical skills. Craftsmanship, for example, labor was performed by slaves.
2: There's also this narrative uh, that uh, uh, people who were enslaved, they are probably treated better in the North. What do we know about that narrative and what was really and true, uh, actually, the truth?
3: Well, I don't know how much we know because that would be very individualized. And the question of slavery is less a question of treatment and one more of political subjectivity. So Frederick Douglass' narrative is very good on this because when he's learning to read, he gives bread to what he calls the street urchins for what he called the bread of life, mm-hmm. which meant that, relatively speaking, these poor white kids may not have had as much food as he has a slave, but they also had something that mm-hmm. he didn't have, which was a sense of mobility and what you call, for lack of a better word, freedom. So for me, the question of slavery doesn't hinge on the level of brutality, Mm. but on this idea that you are forced to not have a certain kind of freedom. And then then this is also intergenerational because it's transferred to your children as well. Mm. And so that, to me, is the defining element of of slavery. So you might be relatively better treated on certain plantations, but that doesn't make you any more human based on the conception of the Mm. slave system.
2: Uh, Debbie uh, Shapiro, uh, when we think about uh, those that were enslaved here in Connecticut, uh, the skilled labor uh, that they did, uh, do we know particular anecdote stories about some of them? Oh, uh, yes.
4: uh, You read my mind because (laughs) I was thinking about this. Um, The largest slaveholder in uh, Middletown was uh, a gentleman named Philip Mortimer and he owned the largest of the rope walks. Uh, A rope walk is is the building where they would weave the hemp into the rope that the ships needed, and um, there are several stories about his enslaved people. Um, One of them uh, is documented, and um, it, it in the In those days, whenever uh, somebody needed something that they couldn't afford and somebody else provided it, they would send a bill to the town of Middletown. So um, in the archives at the Historical Society, there are like eight boxes of these uh, colonial bills to the town of Middletown. and one of them is Philip Mortimer billing the town for the services of his eight uh, slaves, building a bridge uh, for the city. so uh, so they were building the infrastructure of the city, which is one aspect of what we were uh, saying on the plaque, that, uh, that they helped build our city. And um, another anecdote about one of his enslaved people is that um, in his will, he was freeing all of them, but, uh, but one of the heirs uh, contested the will, and uh, the, the gentleman uh, wasn't freed, and was accused of poisoning this heir. And uh, he was found guilty, even though the gentleman didn't uh, didn't die. But he was put in old Newgate prison. And uh, then later, when the Weathersfield prison was built, he was transferred there. And um, they were letting him out. His name was Prince Mortimer. He was the son of a king back in Africa. And uh, he got to the outside world. But he had spent his entire life either being a slave or a a prisoner, so he asked to go back in, and uh, they they let him back in, and he died in Weathersfield Prison at the age of 110. Mm. So there's a whole book written about Prince Mortimer.
2: I can't wait to read that. Uh, my guest today, Debbie Shapiro, municipal historian of Middletown, and Demetrius Udell, professor of U.S. history and dean of the social sciences at Wesleyan University. Uh, coming up, we talk more about Middletown's efforts to acknowledge its history. And do you live in Middletown? You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You're listening to a rebroadcast of Where We Live. It originally aired October twenty fourth, 2019. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Slavery is often viewed as a southern institution in the United States, but New England and other parts of the north would not have prospered without it. This year marks 400 years since the start of American slavery when a ship carrying enslaved Africans arrived in Virginia, then an English colony. You can learn more about our country's legacy of slavery by checking out the New York Times 1619 project online. We'll tweet out a link at Where We Live. Now, today we're talking about Connecticut's connection to slavery, the city of Middletown publicly acknowledging its involvement in slavery. It held a special ceremony at the waterfront in September. My guests were there, Demetrius Udell, professor of U.S. history and dean of the social sciences at Wesleyan University, and Debbie Shapiro, who's the municipal historian of that city. Uh, Debbie earlier you uh, read a portion of that plaque. Again, this is uh, part of a project with UNESCO, the UN's agency that focuses on cultural heritage and preservations. How exactly did you get involved with this?
4: Oh, um, late last year, uh, I was approached by uh, Ann Chin, who's the head of the uh, National Middle Passage Ceremony and Port Marker Project. Uh, asking if I would uh, participate and uh, apply to UNESCO to have Middletown named a site of memory. And our application was accepted, and uh, from there uh, I assembled a committee, um, and um, it was the best committee I've ever been on, and um, and I've been on dozens. So everybody uh, did their part and had great ideas about how we should put the ceremony together, um, I went to this uh, to the Mayor, uh, Dan Drew. Uh, that was my first step to make sure that uh, that the city would be on board with uh, doing the ceremony and putting the plaque down at the harbor. And he gave a very enthusiastic yes. Um, I went to the city council and uh, asked for an appropriation uh, to pay for the plaque, and uh, that was a unanimous vote as well. So uh, the committee uh, uh, went forward with its plans, and um, we had the ceremony on September 28th. And um, it exceeded my expectations. We had over 400 people there, and um, all the speeches were fabulous. Uh, We had several ceremonies, uh, a Native American ceremony, uh, because the Native Americans were here first, and uh, they gave um, permission to uh, proceed with the ceremony. Uh, Gary O'Neill uh, is a, an elder in the Wangung tribe, which is uh, our local tribe in, uh, in Middletown. And we also had uh, African drumming, dancing, and a libation ceremony. And uh, the libation is uh, the pouring of water or wine uh, to evoke the ancestors and to awaken them and bring them into our midst. And then we had uh, youth from Middletown uh, call out the names of the 16 West African countries where enslaved people were brought uh, to America. And uh, others called out the names of enslaved people uh, in Middletown. Mm -hmm. And so the whole ceremony uh, culminated with the unveiling of the plaque and uh, the throwing of uh, bundles of flowers uh, into into the Connecticut River, with the hopes that uh, the the mm-hmm. flowers would reach open water but and you bring bring peace mm-hmm. to the to the people who perished on
2: the Middle Passage. You mentioned uh, the Native Americans. I wanted to go back to Demetrius uh, because we're uh, focusing on the transatlantic uh, slave trade and thinking about uh, the many enslaved Africans that were brought here and then also to the Caribbean. But also, uh, what happened uh, to uh, the natives uh, during that time? The founding of our country, as well as some that were even taken to the Caribbean, Demetrius.
3: That's correct. So um, back to your really earlier point about thinking of slavery not as a Southern institution, the first slave law is going to occur in 1641 in Massachusetts, what's called the body of liberties. And this provided similar to what you think of today as individual rights. But in that, it also said that um, captives of war could be enslaved. And so, and this is, is occurring three years after the end of the Pequot War, beginning of the Pequot War. So, um, the indigenous people are also going to be enslaved. So, these histories belong together, and some of them are actually going to be transported to the West Indies. So, you have indigenous peoples exported and Africans imported. And this is also because the white settlers are expropriating the land of the indigenous peoples as well. So, these histories should be belo- belong together, should be discussed as part of the same sort of historical complex, if you like.
2: Uh, we heard Debbie talk about uh, this ceremony held in, in Middletown. Uh, you were also there uh, at, at Wesleyan. You focus on history and culture of slavery, abolition, and emancipation of the Americas. What do you make of this moment in our country's history where we are now taking time to think back about how this country was founded and not to follow uh, one narrative, but to include what has happened uh, to millions of enslaved Africans and, and the Natives as well.
3: It's very important. I mean, this, is a, this has been a long struggle. There's been quite a bit of scholarship um, trying to redefine or reconceptualize the history of this country. You can go, always go back to um, W. Du Bois, who wrote his dissertation in Harvard on the suppression of the African slave trade. And so every human society tells itself a story, and ours is history. And this history, you know, it tells us often of great things and doesn't want to, you know, talk about the bad things so much. But in order for all of us to feel part of a society, we all have to be included in in that history. And so it means that it also needs to change. And I think looking at the issues today, we have to think about the kind of story we should tell ourselves of who we are to deal with some of our social urgent issues.
2: We heard from Orlean on Facebook uh, who wrote, it's so powerful to acknowledge the ways in which we are all connected and the harms inflicted on enslaved Africans and their descendants. Billy's calling from Middletown. Billy, go ahead. You're on the show.
1: Yes, thank you, Um, Billy. I I collect rare books, and uh, one of the parts of my collection is books on Middlesex County. Um, And um, I was looking through one of them one day, and I saw a print of Middletown's Main Street. And on the corner of Washington Street and Main Street, there used to be a slave auction house, which... um, I would suggest if people are, you know, uh, uh, doing things, that that area should be blessed um, to take out uh, the horror of what happened there uh, many years ago. So that's all I wanted to say, to raise people's awareness about that. I was shocked when I saw it, and every time I drive by there, I think of that.
2: Mm. Well, Billy, thank you for calling in. Uh, Debbie and Demetrius, did you want to respond to uh, what Billy shared with us?
4: Well, Billy, I would love to see this map. Um, because um, the maps that are down at the Historical Society, there's one from 1770, and it it doesn't actually label a uh, slave auction. Uh, It labels several uh, slave dealers, uh, Dr. Walker and Captain Gleason, but neither one of them are on the corner of Washington and Maine. So um, I, I would love to see this map. And I really commend you for collecting uh, books about uh, the town in which you live. Demetrius?
3: It also shows just how normative slavery was, how it was a part of everyday life, and that it wasn't something that was excluded, that was secondary, that was hidden. It was part of the public. It was right in the center of downtown Washington, Washington. And Main Street, you can't get any more center that, you know, if you live in Middletown, you know how bad the traffic is and oh, trying yes. to turn left at that corner, right? So this is really literally the center of town. And slavery, again, was the center of the society. It was mm-hmm. a part of it.
2: Uh, earlier, we talked about uh, how uh, the North also prospered uh, from uh, slavery as an institution. Can you talk more about how it was an economic driver? And when we say, uh, when we say that, what do we mean exactly in terms of not only uh, the economy of Connecticut and New England, uh, but the founding of our country and how it moved it forward?
3: Yeah, so um, at the point of the 1790 census shows that there are about um, maybe under 100,000 slaves. And by the time of 1860, the census, it's, there were 4 million. So actually slavery is going to increase <laughs> with the, uh, after the American Revolution. That's, I mean, you can't avoid that fact. So yes, it was the foundation of the economy in, in many ways. I mean, it wasn't the only thing, but the, the credit for the planters were um, provided by New York bankers. Right? And this is part of a global system. If you think about the textiles, many of the textiles went through. Um, England was really quite dominant in the 18th century. It's sort of Liverpool and Lancaster and the, um, uh, Manchester and those there. But also in the U.S. you have many um, textile mills here. You had one in Thompson, Connecticut, many in Massachusetts. That, you know, they're quite well known. So this is part of, and slavery generated much of the uh, cotton alone, the foreign exchange. So this was not insignificant. So in 1858, James Henry Hammond gives a famous speech in the Senate where he says, you wouldn't dare make war on slavery because this is really like, you know, your are a cash cow. Mm. Well,
4: what's really interesting about that too is that um, the slavery really took off in the South because of the cotton crop. And the reason the cotton crop became so lucrative is because Connecticut native Eli Whitney exactly. uh, invented the cotton gin and um, and that just made cotton the basic part of the economy in the United States. And in Middletown, um, the way we look at it is. Um, it, the economy was totally slave-based because the farmers were making money because their produce was being shipped down to the Caribbean. The uh, ship captains and merchants were making the money as the middlemen, and <clears throat> excuse me, because they were making money, they could support. Um, The artisans who made all the beautiful furniture that we have in the historical society collection. I mean, because that's what remains is this. uh, Are the it's the furniture and and the the pewter. Middletown was a pewter center, and the slavery is what is supporting all of these objects. Mm.
2: Uh, before we run out of time, uh, Debbie and Demetrius, uh, again, we're drawing attention uh, to this public acknowledgement uh, that the city of Middletown uh, has uh, done in terms of this ceremony, this plaque that now uh, is uh, right before uh, the water along the Connecticut River there. Uh, but where do you want to go from here in terms of you know, continuing to acknowledge this history or acknowledging what we do know of the people that lived along Main Street?
4: Well, I would like to see a more curriculum in the uh, in the local schools, uh, so that uh, the students know about this. Uh, the more that people know about what happened in their history, uh, they will have a greater understanding of what people went through, and hopefully that will make them more tolerant or um, make more people work towards a just society. Um, that's I mean, that's my hope and, and my goal in in working on all these projects like this, that, that we will work towards a more just
3: society. Mm. And Dimitri? I couldn't say any better than that. I mean, I really think that we need to think about our, our history and what it does and who's included and who's excluded and reconceptualize it. Mm.
2: Demetrius Udell, again, is Professor of U.S. History and Dean of the Social Sciences at Wesleyan University. Uh, Demetrius, it was a pleasure to meet you. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. Also here, Debbie Shapiro, Municipal Historian of Middletown, Connecticut. Debbie, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpethanchel. After the break, we learn about members of an African-American family in Middletown, Connecticut, who were at the forefront of fighting slavery. Have you heard of the Beeman's? You can join our conversation. As always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You're listening to a rebroadcast of Where We Live. It originally aired October 24th, 2019. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio is hosting a coffee break at local coffee shops across Connecticut to hear from you. What issue or story in your community is not getting the attention it needs? I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Join me and the Where We Live team at Silk City Coffee in Manchester, Connecticut, Tuesday, December 10th. We can't wait to meet you. Check out Where We Live's Facebook page for more information. Now, today, we're focusing on Middletown, a Connecticut city that has acknowledged its ties to slavery, going back to the transatlantic slave trade. Now, there's another effort in town that's getting attention. Have you heard of the Beamans? Their story is being highlighted after a group of community members suggested that a new combined middle school be named after the Beeman family. Now, before we talk about that, we want to learn more about the Beamans. So joining me now in studio is Marty Lohman, who's a, one of the historians at the Cross Street African Methodist Episcopal Church, also a retired high school teacher. Marty, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us about the Beeman
0: family uh, and their origins in Connecticut. Okay. Um, We are very proud that our church, the Cross Street African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church, um, is the church that actually brought the Beeman family to Middletown.
2: So they were descended from uh, someone who was enslaved, Caesar Beeman?
0: Yes. um, Caesar Beeman was the father of Jehiel Beeman, who became the minister at the Cross Street Church in 1831. Caesar uh, was able to win the freedom of his family as a result of fighting in the Revolutionary War instead of his master. And when he returned, um, his master kept his promise and um, freed him. Consequently, the seven children of Jehiel Beeman and his wife uh, were freed. They lived in Colchester, Connecticut. Um, they were educated in Colchester, Connecticut at the Colchester Colored Children's School. That's not the correct name. But if you want to find out the correct name, you go to Colchester, and they have renovated the school, and it's a great place for schools, Mm. churches, families to visit, to hear some of the history of Colchester, Mm. Connecticut, as a result of our great Beeman family. Mm.
2: So tell us more about the Beeman's involvement
0: with the history of your church, as we mentioned. Jehiel Beeman came as the minister. And, you know, it was at a time when enslaved Africans and free Africans, they attended the white churches And several of them were moving away from the churches because of the fact that um, they had to sit in various areas, the balconies, next to the door, and so forth. And several of them were breaking away, forming their own churches. The whites felt this was a great idea. They felt that the only reason that Africans should be educated was to serve God. Consequently, they were allowed to create their own churches— the Cross Street Church, after Jehiel Beeman came, became a center for education, ideas about f- improving your life, and so forth.
2: Oh, for our listeners who are maybe not familiar with uh, the geography of Middletown, Connecticut, when we talk about the Beemans
0: and uh, your church, where are they located exactly? So the first place that the church was located was at the corner of Cross Street and Pine Street. And I'm using the modern names. There were different names at that point. But right now, the Wesleyan Science Center stands where the first church um, was actually built. And so that whole area up the street was the triangle where another rendition of the church was built later on. And that triangle was actually an area that was purchased by Jehiel Beeman's son, Leverett Beeman, where he designated 11 lots that freed Africans could purchase and live. And it was a striving black middle class area. And so all of those, you know, the 11 lots, um, the church, they were all in that vicinity in Middletown, which is the Wesleyan University area Mm. at this point.
2: Uh, This is where we live. My guest in studio, Marty Lohman, one of the cross-street African Methodist Episcopal Church historians, also a retired high school teacher. As we learn more about the Beeman's, a prominent African-American family uh, in Middletown, Connecticut, I wanted to bring into the conversation Jesse Nasta, who is a historian of 19th century African-American history, who's also working on a book about the Beeman family. Jesse, welcome to our show.
1: Uh, Thank you very much for taking my call. I'm a Middletown native and I've really worked with everyone on this show for at least several years now. So it's um, really a pleasure to see this effort and to be part of the conversation.
2: So you mentioned you grew up in Middletown. So when did you actually hear about the Beeman family?
1: Although I'm from Middletown, I also attended Wesleyan as an undergraduate in 2003 to 2007. So I interned at the Historical Society and um, came across their extensive files um, called the Milo Wilcox Collection on local African-American families. So really I started my research uh, around 2006 on the Beemans as a result of that.
2: Mm. We heard uh, Marty give us a, a great introduction to the Beeman family and where the, they were located, as the church as well as these other uh, um, 11 houses in this property, uh, and, and that's part of it, Wesleyan University today. But this was an example of a strong, free, black community in the 19th century right in Middletown. Connecticut.
1: Absolutely. And I would like to encourage listeners to think of the two halves of your shows as one story, one connected story, because the Beemans had been enslaved here in Connecticut, and then for generations after fought for freedom and equality for African Americans, and building churches and forming property-owning communities was really part of that effort to make freedom meaningful and to fight for equality right here. Um, so this is one of only a few uh, free property owning African American mm-hmm. communities in the state. And I just want to tell listeners, the Connecticut Freedom Trail is definitely something to look up because the Connecticut Freedom Trail has over 130 sites throughout the state associated with African American history. And the leverett Beeman Historic District here in Middletown, um, sometimes called the Beaman Triangle, mm-hmm. is one of those 131 sites now.
2: Uh, We heard from our earlier guest, Debbie Shapiro, about the importance of curriculum and teaching uh, young people about uh, these stories, including uh, the Beamens. The reason we're talking about today is that there is also an effort in the city of Middletown by some in the community to have the Beamens be uh, the name of a new combined middle school. Jesse, what can you tell us about that?
1: Sure. Um, So uh, Debbie Shapiro has actually been very involved a community member named Molly Onger has been spearheading that. She reached out to me about four months ago asking me to give input on the history of the Beemans. Um, and I think it's just thrilling, the notion that uh, we're close to naming a, a school right here in Middletown after the Beemans. Um, the Beemans were here for 86 years. They they were you know, from Chahail to Uh, Jehiel's children to grandchildren really fought for African American freedom and equality from the 1830s when, you know, slavery was very widespread uh, throughout the United States all the way through the 1910s when they were fighting Jim Crow and segregation in the 20th century.
2: Uh, Marty, you're here with me, Marty Lohman, who's a church historian at the Cross Street African Methodist Episcopal Church. Uh, you, I'm curious what your thoughts are about because the Beamans are so important to your church community and the history of Middletown, uh, but now this effort to name this new school after the Beamans.
0: Well, the Beamans, um left quite a legacy for our church and for the city of Middletown. As Dr. Nasta uh, mentioned, they were so involved in the community in, you know, the abolition of slavery, um, the getting rid of prejudice. Um, They were stalwarts of education. Uh, Amos Beeman, the son of Jehiel Beeman, uh, struggled so hard in order to um, be able to educate himself. You know, as I said, they were educated in Colchester at the um, at the uh, colored children's school. Um, He also tried to uh, be tutored at Wesleyan University. Uh, He was pushed uh, pushed out of there. Uh, They tried to establish a college in New Haven, Connecticut. Um, that was voted down by the city. Um, education was so important for the improvement of, um, of African-Americans and for the betterment of uh, the African-American society. Um, the Beamans were very much involved um, with voting, mm-hmm. um, with trying to establish uh, the right for Africans to vote. Um, they were levered they were landowners and they were male. So why couldn't they vote just like the rest of the male landowners at that time uh, could mm-hmm. vote? And that was approved by the General Assembly in Connecticut. Um, it was voted down by the towns. Um, but in spite of the fact, people learned about these issues. Um, and so the Beemans were very instrumental in town and by, their, by all means, why shouldn't a high school be mm. named after them? They improved the lives of African-Americans and the lives of white. They were much involved in the temperance movement. Um, many citizens, uh, free blacks, whites, um, were drinking themselves into mm. misery. And the Beemans fought against that. They were a great family.
2: <laughs> I wanted to go back to Jesse uh, because, uh, as Marty mentioned, uh, the family uh, working towards equality uh, for all uh, in the even in the uh, what was then the I believe the Woodrow Wilson High School, the Beemans worked uh, against uh, segregation.
1: Yeah. So, um, Middletown High School in 1840 became the first public high school in the state. But in my research, I came across the fact that in 1844, four years later the Middletown City School Society attempted to officially segregate the high school and officially bar uh, free African-American youth from attending. And the Beamans actually fought that, got an attorney and fought that at the state legislature. And as a result, the Middletown High School remained desegregated. Um, so I think especially because they championed not only freedom, but education, Uh, for African-Americans, what more appropriate way to honor them than naming a school here in Middletown after them?
2: Uh, So there's definitely uh, interest uh, in the community, and as we understand uh A uh, naming committee uh, suggested the Beemans to the Middletown Board of Education, uh, the Board of Ed, approving uh, that name. And now it's before the uh, city's common council. uh, That was, again, uh, told to us by Chris Drake, the Middletown Board of Education Education chairperson. Uh, But as you know, Jesse and Marty, uh, there are some in the community who don't want to see the name be changed away from Woodrow Wilson High School. Um, and I'm just curious what your thoughts are on on their concerns or, and, and their opinion of that,
1: Jesse. My my well, in attending these meetings, it's come up that you know Woodrow Wilson was a, was a segregationist. I mean, so when he was president from 1913 to 1921 the NAACP and other African-American leaders protested, but he ignored their protests and and segregated federal employment and fired a lot of African-American federal employees, postal workers, et cetera. Um, In my own, in attending these public hearings, um, very few people that in the community seem to actually um, care about defending Woodrow Wilson as a person or as a a man. Um, They're concerned that the history of the school will be forgotten if the name is changed. Um, And they gave, you know, very touching testimony. Their parents attended the old Woodrow Wilson High School in the 30s and 40s before it closed and became a middle, Woodrow Wilson Middle School. Um, so I do think that the new school, because I'm a, sto- a historian, um, I would love to see them honor the memory of Woodrow Wilson High School and Woodrow Wilson Middle School. I happened to attend Woodrow Wilson Middle School myself in the 90s, so I'm part of this story and part of this community. Um, but I think, you know, uh, that that name, Woodrow Wilson Uh, is really from 1931, so Mm -hmm. I don't think we have to be tied to a name that Middletown approved 88 years ago in a very different context before there was any public acknowledgement, at least among white people, of the history of, um, you know, segregation and slavery right here in in New England.
2: Uh, We uh, have a comment from Susan Sienko, uh, who actually wrote on a a Change.org petition uh, about not wanting to see uh, the name be changed. Uh, She wrote, whatever President Wilson believed must be considered in the context of his time. Uh, There's no human on earth who hasn't said or done things that would be criticized today. We cannot erase history we can honor achievements while being mindful of the negatives. But it sounds like uh, Jesse, you and others believe the Beemans had such a strong connection uh, to Middletown, uh, their contributions that this is a way to honor that that legacy.
1: Yeah, in addressing that point, um, I feel that you know this is a new school, a new chapter. Um, the name Woodrow Wilson has been honored in Middletown for 88 years, as I said. So my point is, this is a moment when the community can really proactively look around and say, who, who do we most want to honor? Who, who most deserves this honor? Um, and, and, you know what I mean? And I feel like in doing that, the Beamans are a very great choice. Um, so again, it's not so much about putting Woodrow Wilson on trial. He's been dead for 90, 95 years. Um, so you know, I don't think he particularly cares if the school's named after him. <laughs> I think it's, it's more a question of a community coming together, especially in light of this recent acknowledgement of slavery and segregation in New England and saying, um, is this the choice we want to stick with going into the future? Uh, exactly,
2: you know. And I, I see a positive for uh, the Middletown uh, school students, uh, Marty, that uh, they may one day have the, the Beeman uh, family in their curriculum. That they don't have to <laughs> learn about the Beemans because of a news headline.
0: That that would be precious. Um, I, I I do have to say that I too am, uh, you know, a person who went to the Woodrow Wilson Schools, and. Um, You know, as people um, talked about their positions um, and keeping the name, um, you know, I attended the meetings. Um, I will say, though, that the students who presented their arguments, I, I actually came to give a speech. I had on my maroon and gray, which were the colors of uh, of Woodrow Wilson. And, you know, I, I love the school, um, but the students came out in such support and they made wonderful speeches and talked about uh, Woodrow Wilson. Um, it will be great for them to learn more about the Beemans. Um, and, you know, the ideals that they had are so pro education, so don't oppress minorities. Reach down and help your brothers. Um, and so many of the ideas that education is dealing with today—bullying—you don't look down on your brothers. You help them. Um, the importance of education and how it can improve your life—you um, know—which is what the the Beemans um, espoused. Mm. It's so important for those students, and um, as they learn more about the family, and they already know something about the family, um, it will be... um It'll be good for Middletown. Well, we want to thank uh, you,
2: Marty Lohman, uh, again, one of the historians at Cross Street African Methodist Episcopal Church, for coming in today. And also Jesse Nasta, historian of 19th century African-American history, working on a book about the Beeman family history. And we're happy to uh, share some uh, awareness of the Beeman's to our statewide audience. Thank you, uh, Marty and Jesse, for coming on today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Today's show, produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. You can always learn more about the show by downloading Where We Live on your favorite podcast app. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.